How many of you brought your Bible with you this morning? Will you hold up the Word of God? And I want to ask you to join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 23 this morning. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23, page 1110, if you have an old Schofield Bible. Or, if you don't, then it's the third book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 23. And I'll read a verse, just a half a verse here in a moment, and then I'll just kind of move through some other verses as we look at the Word of God together. I do look forward to our service this afternoon. I hope you'll be back for that. Maybe go home and get you a good nap this afternoon. Get fired up and ready for church tonight at 5.30. Hope to be hope to, that you'll be here for our prayer room at 5.05. And then next Sunday afternoon, I've got to start a series of special meetings next Sunday afternoon. So I'm going to start with our Sunday school teachers next Sunday afternoon. And we'll probably meet about 4.45. And I'll announce the exact location for that meeting as we're making plans now to open everything back up again. Sunday school, you know, begins on April the 11th. And so we'll start that then. We're making plans to get all that running. And we just need to get everybody on the same page. I'll be meeting with the choir, the special music in the days to come as well. So I said all that to say this, man, these are exciting times. I sure am looking forward to getting back to a little bit of normalcy after all the craziness of this last year. And I sure hope you'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. All right? The Gospel of Luke chapter 23. If you're there, would you say amen? amen? All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. Once again, we've been doing a countdown over these last, I don't know, seven or eight uh, Sunday mornings. And if you were to get your calendar out and check it out this morning, you would find, of course, today is daylight savings time. We've been moving toward that. And then six days from today, or this coming Saturday, is the very first day of spring. And then if you were to count, starting with today, you'd find that we're exactly three Sundays or 21 days away from, uh, from Easter, our celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. And if you think back in these Sunday mornings moving toward Easter, I've been preaching a series of sermons that I've entitled, Considering Calvary. Considering Calvary. These last several Sunday mornings, we've done nothing but linger around the foot of the cross. We've been hanging around Calvary in our Sunday morning services. Calvary, sometimes in the Bible, referred to as Golgotha. Golgotha was the Hebrew word. The Greek word is Calvary, but both words mean the same place. It means the place of the skull. Calvary is the great crossroads, the great intersection, the great meeting place here on this earth. Calvary is the place where time meets eternity. Calvary is the place where heaven meets hell. Calvary is the place where sin meets grace. Calvary is the place where God meets man. And Calvary is the place where man's worst meets God's best. You cannot bypass Calvary and still go to heaven. You cannot dismiss or dis regard the work of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary and still find favor with God. You know our lives spiritually begin at the very place where the life of the Lord Jesus physically ended at a place called Calvary. Now of course we know that Calvary itself consisted 
of two pieces of wood. The vertical piece was called the stipes, and the horizontal piece was called the patabulum. We also know that the Lord Jesus, while he was being raised upon this earth, was raised as the son of a carpenter in the town of Nazareth. No doubt many times the Lord Jesus worked alongside of his foster father Joseph, and no doubt as a boy and later a teenager, and then those years of his adulthood, no doubt he constructed many things out of out of wood. And many through the years have suggested that Jesus, while he was there on the cross, used those two pieces of wood to build or to construct different things. You know, some people have said that Jesus used those two pieces of wood to build a bridge for mankind to make his way back to God. Others have said that Jesus used those two pieces of wood to build a coffin in which to bury our sins. Still others have said that Jesus used that wood of the cross to build a table to invite all of humanity to come and dine at the feast of, Cal of, of salvation. But personally, I believe the Lord Jesus used the stipes and the patabulum to construct a pulpit in order to preach seven very powerful sermons. You do understand that some of the greatest statements that Jesus made while he was here upon this earth was made during that six-hour period that he hung on the cross. For the last couple of Sunday mornings, I've been preaching on what I've called the cries from Calvary. Now, of course, we know that when Jesus was on Calvary, he made seven different statements while he was on the cross. The first three of those statements he made during the first three hours that he was on the cross. Those hours, if you remember, were the daylight hours from 9 o'clock in the morning until 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And during that three-hour period, Jesus made three different statements from the cross. And then at 12 o'clock, God stepped in and supernaturally uh, pulled a darkness over the sun and, the, and darkness like a shroud, like a veil enveloped the entire earth. And on that, out of that darkness, the Lord Jesus made three more statements. Three more times out of the shroud of darkness, Jesus spoke from the cross. And then just as that shroud began to lift and the sun began to shine, once again, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus spoke one final time from the cross of Calvary. Now you gather up all those statements and I'll tell you, bless your heart, you've got the seven most powerful sermons that the Savior has ever preached. But what I've tried to do in these Sunday mornings is broke those seven statements up into four categories. Because I think you find, and you'll agree with me, that as Jesus spoke from Calvary, that he did so from four different standpoints or from four different positions. I think some of those statements that Jesus made while he was on Calvary, he spoke as the Savior. Some of those statements that he made, he spoke as the Son. Some of those statements he made, he made as the sufferer. And finally, some of those statements that he made, he made as the sovereign. Now, I didn't preach last Sunday morning, so if you'll permit me for just a moment, I'd like to review those first two positions as we make our way into the third and the fourth position this morning. I find from the first two statements that Jesus made, 
while he was on the cross that he spoke from the standpoint of the Savior because his words were about forgiveness. You remember, you remember the first two statements that Jesus made while he was on Calvary? Both those statements were made regarding the subject of forgiveness. Jesus having just arrived at a place called Calvary and as they raised that cross up and it hit the bottom of that hole and those nails held him fast to that cross but with such a jerk and such a, 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 a pounding as that cross hit the bottom of that hole it tore every bone in his body out of joint. Didn't break a bone but it probably pulled every bone in his body out of joint and Jesus as he began to hang upon that cross he had words of forgiveness because he spoke as the Savior. Aren't you glad we got a Savior who can speak words of forgiveness even in this very day and age in which we live. He had words of forgiveness for the mob, for the multitudes, for the murderers that were putting him to death on Calvary that day. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke chapter 23 and in verse number 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. I think about what he could have said. I think about how he could have felt as he hung on the cross that day. He could have hung there filled with anger and filled with resentment and filled with bitterness over how he had been treated while he was here upon the earth. Certainly he could have been filled with anger and resentment and bitterness over how he'd been treated uh, before Calvary and on Calvary as well. But Jesus had no words of anger, no words of resentment and no words of bitterness for that crowd. Jesus simply looked over that mob, looked over that multitude, looked over that murdering, that murdering outfit and Jesus simply said, Father, forgive them. Boy, I want to say again, only God can speak words of forgiveness. You may go see a priest. He may act like he can forgive your sins, but I want to tell you, bless your heart, there's only one who can forgive sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. He had words, words of forgiveness for the murderers, but then he had words of forgiveness for the malefactors as well. Remember when Jesus was put to death on Calvary that day, there was one criminal or thief or malefactor that was put to death on his right side, and there was another one being put to death on his left side. And the Bible tells us, Matthew did, Matthew tells us that those men were not just thieves, but they were malefactors. And that word means to cut. And I think what we understand from that, these boys that were being put to death on either side of Jesus were not just your average run-of-the-mill common criminals of that day. They were not just thieves, burglars, or robblers. No, sir, they were cutthroats. Man, they'd cut your throat for five dollars. You talk about a wicked crowd of people. And one was dying on his right hand, and one was dying on his left hand. And the Bible said that when they got there, both of those, those, those malefactors were ridiculing and mocking and belittling the Son of God. But something happened to one of them while he was hanging there. I'd like to think it was the one on the right side. Aren't you glad you got on the right side of Jesus? one day and that one that was being put to death on the right side whether it was the sayings, whether it was the sounds, whether it was the sights of Calvary, I do not know but something pricked his heart, something dealt with his conscience and in the midst of all that that old malefactor looked at the man in the middle and said Jesus Lord when thou comest into thy kingdom remember me and Jesus looked back with tender words of, of forgiveness and looked back at that old 
malefactor. And he said this, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I said all that to say this, buddy, when Jesus first spoke from that cross, it was from the standpoint of a Savior. And he had words of forgiveness. And I'm glad he's still in the forgiving business to this very day. I don't know where you've been, what you've done, what you've said, who you've been with, but I'm glad this morning if you'll pick all that up and bring it to Jesus, you too can hear words of forgiveness from the Savior. He spoke as Savior. But then, he, and then secondly, he spoke as Son. And he had words of loneliness. Remember when Jesus was put to death on Calvary that day that he spoke to his mother and then he spoke to his heavenly father. When it came to his mother, he had words for John, the only disciple that followed him to the cross. And he looked down at John and he said, John, he said, behold thy mother. In other words, he was saying, John, take care of mama. I won't be here anymore to take care of her. And boy, John, uh, John, I want you to take care of mama. It's obvious to me he couldn't leave them in the care of his brothers and sisters because they were unbelievers at this time. They were not fit to take care of his mama. So he looked down at that disciple of love and he said, I want you to love mama. I want you to take care of mama. But then he said this to his mother while he was hanging on the cross. He said, woman, behold thy son. Now let me stop and say he made provision for his mama when he spoke to John. But he made protection for his church when he spoke to Mary. He didn't say, he didn't call her mother Behold thy son. But he said, woman, behold thy son. You see, Jesus could look down through the scope of time. And though he made provision for his mama, he was also making protection for his church. Soon to be born and later to be corrupted. Jesus looked down through the scope of time. And he saw that crowd that was going to rise up over there in Rome one of these days. And say that Mary was a co-redemptrix with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus with those words, woman, a term of respect, but not a term of relationship. He put her in her place. You know why? Because there's only one way you can get to God. There's only one mediator. You can't go through Mary. You can't go through the Pope, bless your heart. You can't find it through Peter, James, or John. Hey, but if you'll come through Jesus, he's the one and the only mediator between God and man. Only way you can get to God is through his son, Jesus Christ. He had a word for his mama, a word for Mary. Then he had a word for his father. Remember, at 12 o'clock, God shrouded the earth in a supernatural darkness. And as that darkness, at that, that period of time for three hours, at what we would call the brightest part of the day, it became as black as midnight. And in the last part of that three hours of darkness, Jesus cried out of that darkness and he said, My God, my God, why? Hast thou forsaken me? Now, I've told you this out of those seven statements. The first one was to the Father. The last one was to the Father. But the one in the middle, the fourth statement, was to the Father. But he didn't call him Father. He called him God. You know what that tells me? Jesus had always enjoyed, while he was here on this earth, an unbroken fellowship, an intimate fellowship, an unbroken closeness between he and the Father. But when Jesus was hanging on Calvary, that 
that fellowship was disrupted. That fellowship was broken. Can I tell you why? Because Jesus not only bore our sins up that hill, thank God he became our sin. Every cuss word, every bad thought, every drink of liquor, every immoral drug, uh, every illegal drug, every immoral relationship, every glance at the phone, every lottery ticket, bless your heart. I'm telling you, Jesus bored up Calvary's hill and became it while he was on Calvary. And when Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, that fellowship was broken because sin is the great separator. Sin is the great divider between God and man, between man and wife, wife and husband, uh, brothers and sisters and sons and children and children and parents. Sin is the great separator. And Jesus on the cross was separated from his father because he became our sin and God forsook his own son. But looky here. I'll tell you why God forsook his own son. So that he could look at you and he could look at me and say that right there. I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. God said, I'll turn my back on my son. God said, I'll forsake him so there'll never be a time that I'll have to forsake you. I don't know what you're going through, how dark the night is, how bad the storm, but I'll tell you, bless your heart, if God's moved into your heart, he'll never pick his bags up and walk out. Your heart's not like a hotel room with a 12 o'clock checkout. Thank God he's there and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. What a savior. Amen. Words as son. Why hast thou forsaken me? But here we go now. Because Jesus not only spoke as savior words of forgiveness and his son words of loneliness, but he spoke as sufferer words of tenderness. What do I mean by that? Words of tenderness. Well, we understand that when Jesus arrived at Calvary, some six hours prior to what I'm about to tell you, he was offered something to drink when he first got on Calvary. When they first raised that cross up and put the Son of God, crucified him, the very first thing that they offered him was vinegar mixed with gall. Now, when we think about vinegar, I don't know about you, but I think about apple cider vinegar, something very sour, something very bitter. But vinegar and gall was used as a sedative, something like a narcotic back in those days. It was used to alleviate the pain. And when they offered Jesus a drink of that, Jesus refused it. Jesus seemingly is indicating to us that he wants to feel the full blow and the blunt of God's fury and wrath against sin. But then six hours later, just before he ends his time on Calvary, out of the darkness of that hour, the Son of God raises himself up on that cross and he cries, Ah, first, he's indicating to us the suffering that he's going through on the cross of Calvary. Over in John chapter 19 and verse number 28, Scripture says, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I 
thirst. He was suffering in untold agony. He was enduring untold pain. I don't mean to bore you with what I'm about to tell you, but I'd like to read you something that I read this week because this is a medical doctor's perspective of what a body went through when it was being crucified on a Roman cross. And here's not what a Baptist preacher says. Here's not something I got out of some Bible commentary. I'd like to read you what a doctor says goes through happens to a body as it was being crucified. Here's what he says. He says, after being crucified over a period of time, the arms outstretched will begin to tire as cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in a deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps through the legs comes the inability to push oneself up upon the cross to breathe in air. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. He fights then to raise himself up in order to draw in one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream and the cramps begin to tighten and worsen. He struggles to raise himself upward to exhale, breathing in life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-ridden cramps will then bring partial asphyxiation. Searing pain shoots through the back as he raises himself up to inhale, uh, uh, causing the tearing of tissue in his back as it's already been lacerated and laid open by the scourging. But just then, when all seems to be at worst, another agony strikes, a crushing pain deep in his chest as his heart begins to struggle to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood throughout the various parts of his body. It is now almost over. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to, to gasp, in, gasp in the smallest amount of air. The loss of blood, exposure, exposure, the heat, dehydration, the flies coupled with a high fever will cause the lips to crack and bleed. The tongue will become thick. The eyeballs will dry, adding even more torment to an otherwise excruciating death. He went on to say this, the reason for death by crucifixion could vary. It could result from suffocation. It could come from blood loss. It could come from fluid building up in the lungs or else it could come from complete and utter heart failure. The Lord Jesus is literally suffering our hell on Calvary. I told you a moment ago, Calvary is the place where heaven meets hell because Jesus suffered everything that you and I would ever suffer if we died and went to hell. The tribulation, the, the se separation, the dehydration, we all know that's a part of hell. The tribulation, the pain, the torment, the separation from loved ones, family, friends, and greatest of all, God, and the dehydration as the man in Luke 16 cried, please just give me one drop of water. Jesus out of that darkness raised himself up upon that cross and in untold agony cries I thirst is it not amazing that the one who carved out the oceans scooped out the lakes traced out the rivers and streams is it not amazing that the one who watered the earth with a mist in the garden and broke up the fountains of the deep in the days of Noah is it not amazing that the one who supplied the nation of Israel with water out of the rock as they wandered in 
the wilderness. Is it not amazing that the one said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink? Is it not amazing that the one who said, if any man believe on me, out of his belly shall flow livers, rivers of living water? Is it not amazing that the one who told a wicked woman, if you'll drink of the water that I'll give you, you'll never thirst again? Is it not amazing that the one who said all that now cries out of the darkness of that hour and says, I thirst. And yet, Jesus was dying thirsty so that you and I might not have to live thirsty. Can I tell you what God was doing when Jesus was dying on that cross? God, as it were in heaven, was turning over a fountain of water and any soul that realizes there's a thirst that nothing in this world can quench can come to the water of life and drink freely and find that which will immediately satisfy him for time as well as eternity. Listen, every one of us when we were born in this world were created with an unquenchable thirst and sad but true, many people try to fulfill that thirst. They try to satisfy that thirst in all the wrong things of the world. They drink their liquor, do their drugs, live their immoral relationship. They're trying to find something to bring inward satisfaction and contentment. But I'm glad I can point you to an old rugged cross where God opened up a fountain and he says to you and me, come on and drink. It's free. And if you'll drink, you'll live forever and be satisfied. Oh yeah, I thirst words of tenderness. He spoke as a sufferer. But we're almost done. The six hours is almost complete. But he's got two more things he wants to say as he speaks as the sovereign. Words of kingliness. Now what do I mean by that? Well, we know that when Jesus is nearing his time, on the cross as it's coming to an end, having completed the work that he has been sent here to do, Jesus cried from that cross. In John chapter 19 and verse number 30, the sixth cry from Calvary. It is finished. I want you to think about that trio of words. Aren't you glad he didn't say, I am finished. Buddy, I'm glad that was not the end of him. 72 hours later, three days later, on the first day of the week that we now know is the Lord's day, Jesus is going to walk out of the blackness of that tomb and say, I am he that was dead, but behold, I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore. He didn't say, I am finished. I'm glad. But I'll tell you something further. I'm glad he didn't say. I'm glad he didn't say, you are finished. Boy, he could have. Hey, can I tell you something? Jesus could have come down off that cross. He could have ripped his hands and feet from those nails. He could have stomped, stomped flat the high hills of Judea, called the whole world to Armageddon, and ladies and gentlemen, condemned every last one of us to hell forever. But aren't you glad when he was on the cross, he didn't say, you are finished. But he said, it is finished. Now, let me tell you something in the Greek language. The Greek prided themselves over being able to say little out of much. In our English language, it is finished is, one, is three words. But in the Greek language, it's only one word. It's the word tetelestai. That's what the word is. When Jesus upon the cross cried out of that darkness and said, it's finished, 
It, it, it said, Tetelesta finished. Well, I found out that word was used in a variety of ways in the days of the Lord Jesus. When a servant was given a task by his master and he'd come back in as the sun began to set in the western sky and he'd completed the task, he'd go to his master and he would say to his master, Tetelesta, the work has been completed. I found that word was a priestly word. When those priests back in those days on the annual day of atonement and they'd go looking for that perfect sacrifice. I mean they'd examine the ears. They'd pull up the, 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 the lips and look at the teeth. They'd look at the tongue. They'd peel th through the, the, the fleece of the lamb looking for any black hair. They'd examine the hoofs. I mean man they inspected that thing from one end to the other. But when the priest found a perfect lamb he would step out and declare to the nation the perfect sacrifice has been found. But furthermore, after the day of atonement, when he would walk behind the veil and he'd go back over the blood of that lamb, sprinkling that blood and putting it on the mercy seat, if God accepted it, he'd walk back behind, through the veil, through the holy place, out the, out the woolen fence, and he'd declare to the nation of Israel, it's been accepted. The sacrifice has been made. But then I found out it was a merchant's word. It Anytime you went and bought something on credit and you made your payments and when it was all said and done, they would write across the ledger to tell us now paid in full. I got to thinking when Jesus was on the cross he looked down the list of all that God had given him to do. He'd done the will of God. He spoke the work of God the words of God. He'd done the work of God and there on the cross he looked up into the face of God the Father and he said to Telestai it's finished. The task has been completed. But he could say as the priestly sacrifice he could say thank God the sacrifice has been made. It's been accepted to tell us die. It's been paid in full. When Jesus died upon Calvary, he said, it's finished. You and I don't have to lift a finger nor a foot to help him save ourselves. There's not one thing you and I can put to it or add to it. It's complete. It's done. It's finished. Thank God salvation is available to all mankind. It's finished. But I think here's what it means to me. I got to hurry, but I'll tell you what it means to me is this. When he said it's finished, he was saying this. They'll never treat me like this again. I think when he said it is finished, he was saying, I'll never be beaten again. I'll never be spat upon again. I'll never be scourged or cursed or belittled or crucified again. I think what he's saying when he said this, it is finished. I think what he's saying is it's going to be different the next time I come. You see, the first time he came, uh, he came to redeem. But the next time he comes, he'll come to reign. The first time he comes was as a meek Messiah. The next time he comes will be as a majestic Lord. The next time he comes is not to a cross, but to a crown. The next time he comes, he'll wear a crown all right. But it won't be a crown of thorns. We're going to crown him king of kings and lord of lords. The next time he comes is as a lion to reign not a lamb to redeem. The next time he comes is to a coronation, not a crucifixion. The next time he comes, he won't stand before Pilate. Bless your heart, Pilate will stand before him. It's finished, friend. They'll never crucify him again. He'll never be treated in such a fashion as, as he was treated that first time. When he comes back, he'll be king of kings, lord of lords, and the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our God and our Christ. Amen. It's finished. 
words of kingliness. But now join me because the six hours on the cross is now completed and the shroud of darkness begins to lift. It rises up and out of the twilight of the three o'clock hour, Jesus has one final thing to say and his last statement on the cross is when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. What a state. He begins talking about the Father's hands. You say, preacher, why is that so important? Well, you've got to understand, for the last 18 hours of his life, he's been in the hands of man. They have walked out to the garden where he prayed with such a broken heart that his sweat became great drops of blood. They have arrested him. They have taken him through the mockery of trials and beaten him and bloodied him and battered him over and over again. In the hands of those men, they have nailed him to an old rugged cross. But now as all of that is over, Jesus takes himself out of the hands of men and he gives himself over into the hands of his Father. I like that word commend because the word commend means to deposit. And what Jesus is literally saying is this, I'm taking myself out of the hands of these who have so evilly and cruelly treated me and I am depositing myself into the hands of my heavenly Father. Can I tell you something? That's the greatest place any of us can ever deposit our lives is into the hands of our heavenly Father. Can I tell you something about God's hands? God's hands never grow frail. You know, my hands do. I'm, I'm 58. I told the earlier crowd this, but I'm not near as strong as I used to be. I, I find myself getting a little bit wobbly on a ladder. In fact, I fell off a ladder not too awful long ago. thought I'd kill myself. My wife said, you want me to call 911? I said, just give me some Tylenol. I mean, I thought I had killed. I mean, honestly, you ask her, it was not pretty. I mean, one minute there, the next minute there. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, I'm alive, praise God. But, uh, boy, my hands are getting frail. I find myself all the time, my mind tells me I still can do things. But, boy, does my mind lie me. I find my hands getting stiff. Some mornings when I wake up, it's hard to bend my fingers. Time is telling on me. Time is making a difference in my body. But aren't you glad that we got a God up in heaven that'll never get up though he doesn't sleep in the morning and say, Gabriel, you're going to have to go get me some Tylenol. I can't hardly even move my hands this morning. Those hands are just as fresh and powerful as they were on the very moment, the morning when God said, let there be and there was. He's still just as fresh and powerful. His hands never grow frail. What about this? His hands never get full. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, though millions have come, we sing that song. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room. I don't care where you've been or what you've done. You come to him this morning. 
there's still room. Because those hands will never get full. There's a, yeah, there's room for you, sir. Ma'am, there's room. There's room right here. They never get full. And what about this? From those hands, you'll never fall. I stagger around now. I get so dizzy-headed sometimes. I, I, honestly, I can't hear. I can't see. I get so dizzy. But at least I can still drive. I stagger. I stumble. I slip. I fall around. But I'm so glad. The older I get, the more I know. I'm in one whose hands I can never fall. Aren't you glad for His hands is better than all state or whichever one it is. But it's better because you can never fall. I had somebody tell me before, uh, but, but preacher, you, you, you can fall. You can fall. I said, no, the Bible said, neither man, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hands. And they said, now, oh, wait a minute, preacher. I'm a man. I can pluck myself. I said, first of all, how stupid is that? Who wants to get themselves out of the hands of God to start with? But number two, aren't we men? I mean, aren't we humans? No human, no man, no woman can pluck themselves out of the Father's hands. Boy, I'm glad. Jesus said, hey, Father, he said, Father, this is done. This is over. I'm taking myself out of the hands of man, and I'm placing myself into your hands. I deposit myself into your hands. I got to thinking about this. Did you know Jesus began his time on the cross with a prayer to the Father? He really did. His first prayer to the Father Father, forgive them. We just talked about that. Father, forgive them. He began his time on the cross with a prayer, a request to the Father. He ended his time on the cross with a prayer, with a release to the Father. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. How many of y'all are with me? I told you that to tell you this, and we're done. Jesus, on that cross died with a prayer so that none of us in this room today would have to die without a prayer. Amen. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washes white as snow. Have you ever deposited your heart into the hands of the Savior? Have you ever said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit? Last night I couldn't sleep, and I don't know why. I guess I was afraid of oversleeping, and I couldn't sleep. You ask my wife, I mean, and she did too, but we just tumbled all night long. And I mean, it was tough. And you know, most people, when they, when they can't sleep, they count sheep. But if you're a preacher, you don't count sheep, you count funerals. So for some reason, I got it on my mind last night, the funerals that I've already had this year. And for some reason, I couldn't remember. I, could just, I kept leaving one out. I knew how many I had, but I couldn't remember which one I was leaving out. I could not remember. And I thought about it coming down the road this morning. But can I tell you something? The saddest time to me of any funeral that we ever have here at our church is you know, that they, if you have been to a funeral here, the casket is always placed right here. 
And the family usually stands right through there. And folks will just come around and they'll view the body and they'll walk over here and they'll speak to the family. And then right before the service starts, the funeral people will come and they'll get the family and they'll lead them out and put them over there in the room somewhere. And while the family's out, those men will come up here and they'll hit those little props and they'll lower the lid on that casket. And that'll be the last time in this world that we'll ever see them. That's it. Now, there are some families that torture themselves and they'll open the casket back up and, and come back around again and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever y'all want me to do. I, it don't matter to me. But buddy, that's tough on a family. So they close that casket and they got a little key and they'll stick it over here and they'll wound something up and I guess that just seals everything in and we know that's it. It's over. We'll never see them again. But can I ask you a question or tell you something? You and I are never ready for that casket to close until we're ready for it to open. We're never ready for life till we get ready for that casket to close. And the only way to get ready for the casket to close is to deposit your soul into the hands of the Heavenly Father. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Have you ever prayed that before? If you haven't, I'd like to invite you to do that this morning. Christ from Calvary, Savior, Son, Sufferer, Sovereign, words of kingliness. It's over now. It's done. It'll never happen again. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray.